0: 2007, October 4th. Lecture 12, The Wanderers. We want to finish finish our discussion today. We've been working, talking since the very first day of class about astronomy that you can do with your naked eye. Things you can just watch out and observe. We've talked about the rising and setting of the stars, the sun and the moon. We've talked about the cycle of lunar phases. We've talked about the sun's course along the celestial celestial sphere, through the pathway of the ecliptic over the years. We've talked about some of the applications of observations of those timings, the use of the keeping of time and the application of calendars. We've talked about the implications of seasons because of the differing sun angle as a function of the different times of the year. But I've sort of studiously avoided talking about the other celestial bodies that you can see with the naked eye, namely the planets except to mention them in passing when we talked about the origins of the days, names of the days of the week, at least in the Latinate languages, we really didn't say anything about the planets. Well now it's time to talk about them. We're going to finish our discussion of the naked eye phenomena by talking about the wandering stars or the planets. Planets are those wandering stars, they appear star-like to the naked eye, that appear to follow very complex paths very close to the ecliptic plane. They move along Roughly the same part of the sky that's occupied by the zodiac. Some of them tilted a little bit on their paths with respect to the ecliptic. But otherwise, they move along the ecliptic just like the moon and the sun. There are a number of planetary configurations that are based on the apparent positions from the Earth. We're going to meet each of these. The configurations that are unique to the inferior planet and those unique to the superior planet, and we'll define inferior and superior shortly and then talk about conjunction and opposition, two in particular that are important to us for talking about superior planets. And at the very end of class, we're going to introduce the reason why the planets are so difficult to talk to, why their apparent path in the sky are so complicated, is because while everything in the sky appears to steadily slip towards the east, the sun appears to move east on the the ecliptic, the moon appears to move eastward with respect to the stars from night to night, But when you look at the motions of the planets with respect to the stars, sometimes they move east, sometimes they stop, and sometimes they start moving backwards to the west. And this is called retrograde motion. And it was the retrograde motion that made the motions of the planets the most challenging things to to describe. And it was the attempt to describe that motion that really gave birth to modern science. So we use this as a entree, if you will, into the course of lectures that will begin after the quiz tomorrow, on Monday, about the rise of modern astronomy. So let's just review for a second what the naked eye sky looks like. If you walk out on a clear day or a clear night, what are the sorts of phenomena you can see? Well, the most obvious celestial phenomenon, the one that's right as bright as anything else, brighter than anything else, is the sun. The sun appears as a bright disk in the sky, about a half a degree across as viewed from the surface of the Earth. The next brightest object in the sky is the Moon. The Moon runs through a series of phases from day to day through the course of a single lunar month, and it too appears when it's full as a disk approximately a half a degree across. It's the coincidence in sizes, angular sizes, between the Sun and the Moon that give rise to the cycle of lunar and solar eclipses. Then, of course, we see the stars. These are bright pinpoints of light. They're all different brightnesses from very bright, like the dog star Sirius, to things you can barely see with the naked eye. In round numbers, you can see about 6,000 stars across the entire celestial sphere. The stars are going to give us our fixed frame of reference in the sky as seen from the Earth. The stars, at least on a human time scale, do not appear to move with respect to each other when observed with the naked eye. They appear to be fixed to the celestial sphere, and then the whole celestial sphere is rising in the east and setting in the west, carrying the sun and moon and all the stars with them. So because the the stars don't change their configuration, they simply rise in the east and set in the west, they're going to be our standard of motion. And in fact, if I watch the motion of the sun through the course of the year, while the sun also rises in the east and sets in the west, As I watch it day to day, which stars the sun is against is going to change because the sun is slowly moving to the east against the stars. So too with the moon. The moon appears against different stars night to night, but it takes only about uh, 27.3 days for it to go completely once around with respect to the stars, the so-called sidereal period. Well, there are other things we can see in the sky, though. And these are the planets, the so-called wanderers. The name planet comes from the Greek word planetai, meaning the wanderers. These are objects that also move relative to the fixed stars. They appear as bright points of light. And in fact, to the naked eye, all of the planets appear as if they were relatively bright stars. They're all naked eye stars, at least of the five classical planets that we're used to thinking about. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They're the only planets that are visible to the naked eye in the solar system. Now these planets all stay within a few degrees of the ecliptic. They most get it most about five or six degrees out of the ecliptic and tend to generally move around with respect to the stars in a generally west towards east pattern from night to night. They, too, rise in the east and set in the west, but on the next night you will see them next to different stars in the sky. The paths, however, that they take are very, very complex and they have very different time scales and very different speeds associated with them. For example, if you watch the path of Mercury with respect to the stars, Mercury takes only 88 days to complete one sidereal period, one set of motions with respect to the background stars. So if I saw Mercury in a particular constellation, 88 days later it would be back in that same configuration. Similarly, Saturn is the slowest moving of the planets it takes 30 years to complete a circuit around the celestial sphere through the zodiac so we see a very large range of motion of course between Mercury and Saturn is everything in are the other ones are kind of in between each other there are five classical planets Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn as I said before these are the only ones that you can walk outside and see with the naked eye very likely if I took a quick poll of the room you've all seen Venus It's most apparent because it appears a lot of the time as a bright morning star or an evening star. Probably many of you have seen Mars. It's very bright and red. It was very bright um, a number of years ago when it came very close to the Earth. Jupiter and Saturn are also visible, but Saturn's a little harder to find if someone doesn't point it out. You've probably seen Jupiter. Sometimes people confuse it for Venus because they're both the two brightest of the naked-eye planets on average. Very few of you have probably seen... How many of you have seen the planet Mercury? I'm pretty sure you've seen it. Yeah, only one or two hands go up. I only see Mercury every now and then. It's very challenging to find because it doesn't go very far from the Sun. Here's a photograph of the planets. This is a wonderful picture taken from the Clementine Lunar Orbiter in which the Sun is now very conveniently blotted out behind the limb of the Moon. But we can see these denizens of the ecliptic, Mercury, Mars, and Saturn, all appearing lined up with the Sun you get the impression with the Sun, Moon, Mercury, Mars, and Saturn in this picture of the planets all lying along a given plane. Now, it doesn't happen very often, but if if you can go into it, there are some times you'll get where, for example, a lot of the planets are in the evening sky. This last happened a couple of years ago. You had Venus up as an an evening star. The moon was a beautiful uh, waxing crescent, so it was growing in size. The sun had just set. There was Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Saturn was just starting, just had risen a few hours before over the western horizon. And What was really great about that configuration is if you took your hand to just where the sun set, up through the moon, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, you could just see the sweep of the ecliptic across the sky. You really got this impression of them all lying along a plane. So they stood out for that reason. They stayed in the ecliptic. They weren't just anywhere on the sky, but only within that band of the zodiac. So what are the properties of these planets? What are the things we can see about them? Well, the first thing that early astronomers noted very quickly is that the planets seem to fall into two basic groups, which over time have come to be referred to as the inferior planets and the superior planets. The inferior planets are Mercury and Venus. The reason why they were called inferior planets is they never stray very far from the sun in the sky. They appear to be following the sun around like a couple of little dogs following a person walking down the street. For example, Mercury never gets more than 28 degrees away from the sun. That's why it's so hard to see, because it's always going to be very close, 28 degrees is like a couple of hands held up side by side in the sky doesn't get very far from the Sun. You only see it either just after sunset or just before sunrise, but no, no other time. Venus is not only brighter, turns out to be a bigger planet, but it only gets 47 degrees or so, about 46.3, 46.5 is the precise number. But it never gets further than that from the Sun. It never appears high in the sky, it never appears at midnight. It only stays about 47 degrees. So, you know, 90 degrees is kind of straight up plus the horizon. That's about 47 degrees. It, Never gets either west or east of the Sun never gets further away. So there was notice they stood out they couldn't appear anywhere along the celestial along the ecliptic plane and the celestial sphere. They only appeared in, together with the Sun. The superior planets are the other three Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. Their motions along with the ecliptic appeared to be independent of the Sun. They didn't seem to care whether the, where the sun was on the sky. they could be any angle. They wanted to from the sun up to and including 180 degrees in either direction. And so those were considered to have independent motion and therefore they were termed the superior planets. What this means is a superior planet can be seen at any time of the night. I can see Jupiter or Saturn or Mars up at midnight with the sun nowhere to be found. But Mercury and Venus were different. You only see them just after sunset or just before sunrise, depending on which side of the sun they are on. So that's the distinction between inferior and superior planets. When we come to Copernicus next week, we're going to see now a physical explanation for why the planets divide themselves into two groups. I'll tell you right now, it has nothing to do with size, It has nothing to do with that a superior planet is not necessarily bigger than an inferior planet. In fact, physically, Mars is smaller than Venus. So there's nothing having to do with size. They're not better than them. It's simply whether they appear to move with the sun or whether they appear to move independently of the sun, but all stay within the ecliptic plane. So let's describe these planetary configurations as we see them from the Earth. Now, for the perspective that I'm going to take this, to draw out these configurations, I'm going to zap ahead to the geo, to the. To the uh, sun-centered version of the solar system. I'm going to approximate orbits as circles concentric with the sun. An inferior planet will also turn out to be those planets that are closer to the sun than the Earth. So here, for example, is a standard configuration, the sun in the middle. The yellow circle here is the orbit of an inferior planet, say Venus or Mercury, and here is the Earth marked out here on its circle. And then this line that I've drawn is the Earth-sun line. There are two configurations that are of importance to us with respect to this particular line. Inferior conjunction is when the inferior planet is between the Earth and the Sun as seen on the sky. Superior conjunction is when the planet is on the other side of the Sun from the Earth. So they both appear together with the Sun as viewed in our sky, but the difference is one is passing more or less in front of the Sun not always exactly you can have Venus or Mercury can occasionally cross the face of the Sun but that's a very rare occurrence and certainly Venus and Mars can go behind it or get lost in the glare of the Sun what matters of course for each of these configurations is how it appears to be moving on the celestial sphere when it is either at inferior or superior conjunction that's the clue that you get we'll see what that is here in just a moment During either of these two configurations, superior or inferior conjunction, the planet in question, Venus or Mercury, rises and sets with the sun. So that's one of the other ways that you can tell when they're in the conjunction, is they're, if you will, they are conjoined. They're on the same side of the sky as viewed from the Earth. They rise and set with the sun. So these are the simplest configurations, inferior conjunction, planet between the Earth and the sun, Superior conjunction, inferior planet on the other side of the Sun from the Earth, but along this Earth-Sun line that I've drawn here in the sketch. So inferior, superior conjunction. Now the other thing we can find is that the inferior planet configurations have two other configurations when they're at maximum Eastern and maximum Western distance away from the Sun. A feature of the inferior planets is they never get more than a maximum angle away from the Sun. If this planet is up at this position here, for example, at the position where it is the furthest east it ever gets from the Sun as seen from the Earth, we call that maximum eastern elongation. For the planet Mercury, this angle here, the Sun-Earth-Planet angle, is called the elongation angle. This angle here is never more than 28 degrees for Mercury or 47 degrees for Venus. Now, if the star is at maximum eastern elongation, it is east of the sun. Since the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, that means this. Yeah, it's east of the sun. So that means it's the sun. if it's east of the sun, then the sun will rise before the planet. And as the sun sets, the planet is the sun. as the sun sets in the west. You have to move east of the sun, so the planet will be will be up in the evening sky. So when you are at maximum eastern elongation you are going to be an evening star. You are going to have Venus as evening star or Mercury as evening star. It's when it's at that maximum position it stands out the most. It stays up longest at night before it finally, too, sets below the horizon. Of course, I can flip this diagram around and talk about when is the planet at its maximum western angle away from the sun. That's not surprisingly called maximum western elongation. It's the furthest west of the sun that the planet gets, as seen from the position of the Earth. Because it is west of the sun, it rises above the eastern horizon before the sun and sets before the sun sets. And so in this particular circumstance, it's going to be a morning star. So when Venus is up 47 degrees above the horizon or 47 degrees away from where the sun is, Just at sunrise, that's maximum Western elongation. And similarly for Mercury, it's 28 degrees. Because this picture is symmetrical about the Earth-Sun line, the angle of maximum Western and maximum Eastern elongation in this simple circular approximation is essentially the same angle. And certainly to within the ability of the naked eye without aid of instruments to see, that in fact is the case. So we have maximum Eastern elongation, the inferior planet as far east of the sun as it ever gets, and maximum western elongation, the maximum the planet ever gets west of the sun. And those combined with inferior conjunction and superior conjunction constitute the four major configurations of the planets, at any, of the inferior planets. So at any given time, you'll be anywhere in between one of those four particular configurations. And so what you do to mark time as you're tracing out the motions of the inferior planets, what you do is you sort of want to seize on very particular extreme configurations. And so what you would find in ancient tables, for example, in, ta- in Babylonian tables of the motions of Venus, they very carefully tabulated the predicted times of maximum western and eastern elongation and of inferior and superior conjunctions. And then, of course, in between, they would calculate what the angles should be from the sun but you paid particular attention to these configurations, kind of analogous to the same way we pay attention to the solstices and equinoxes when noting where is the Sun on its course around the sky. In the case of an inferior planet, you would note the course of the planet by which of the configurations it's coming out of or going into. So that's the the utility of these configurations. We're going to see other geometric utilities of these configurations next week when we talk in detail as people try to figure out what the motions of the planets actually were. Here's a very pretty picture, uh, it's taken by an amateur astronomer here, uh, Tunk Tetzel, he's a, a Turkish amateur astronomer, showing the night-to-night motion of Mercury at sunset, usually about the same time, here taken between 2004, March and April, And we see the uh, it was taken at the same time with the sun at the same position below the horizon each night. And what you see is Mercury getting as far as it ever gets away from the sun. So you can see this path of maximum elongation as you trace it across the sky. And just to remind you kind of where the sun is during one of these dates, and I forgot to look up where, I think it's March 22nd in this sequence, was the crescent moon pointing, of course, to where the sun is down in here. So this shows you what the typical path of Mercury is. It shows you it doesn't get very far off the horizon at all. This is why Mercury is so very challenging to see. What about the superior planets? Well, it turns out the superior planets, in a, in a sun-centered solar system view, are those planets that are further from the sun than the Earth. Their orbits are larger than the Earth's orbit. Now, once again, I can draw the Earth's sun line as a line here and that defines a fundamental line for telling the configuration. But now the orbital circle of the superior planet is a circle larger than the orbit of the Earth. There are two configurations of interest to us here. One of these is called opposition, so-called because it is when the planet is on the opposite side of the sky from the Sun. So in this case, this planet here, maybe this is Mars, is up overhead at midnight, And the Sun is, of course, on the opposite side of the sky, as seen from our perspective here, the Earth. This planet gets as high as it ever gets at midnight. In fact, it crosses our meridian at midnight. And there's another observational fact. The planet is as bright as it ever appears when it is at opposition. This turns out to be an important clue to figuring out what the physical configuration of the planets is. Just keep that one kind of in the back of your head. Now, if we can have opposition, when the Earth's planet is on the opposite side of the sky as seen from the Earth, there is another configuration where the planet is on exactly the other side on the Earth's Sun line, when the planet is on the same side of the sky as the Sun, or in this physical interpretation, when the superior planet is behind the Sun as seen from the Earth. In this configuration, the planet rises with the Sun, and it doesn't appear at all at night because it just stays close to the sun as it moves around on its path. We call this conjunction. You'll notice a difference here. There was also a conjunction for the inferior planets, but we distinguish between inferior conjunction and superior conjunction. Inferior being when the inferior planet was closest to us, superior conjunction when the inferior planet was as far away as it ever gets from us. In this case, we drop an adjective altogether. There is one and only one conjunction that a superior planet can be in, and that's on the other side of the sky on the same side of the sky from the, as the sun, or in this heliocentric sun-centered system when the planet's on the opposite side of the sun from us. If you want to add the word superior conjunction, you can, but it's kind of moot. It's the only conjunction it goes through. You never would see, the planet at inferior conjunction because it can't get between the Earth and the Sun. The next configuration is, well, we've got this nice line here of the Earth and the Sun. Let's cut it at right angles. Let's sector the sky as seen from the Earth up into quadrants or quarters. Well, I can define two quadrature positions in which the planet is along one of these points where this quadrant line, this line at 90 degrees to the Earth's sun line intersects with the planet's orbit. This is gonna give us two quadrature configurations. The first of these is when the planet is at the position where it is on the eastern quadrature position. So we form the planet earth sun line forms a 90 degree angle, but as seen in the sky, the planet is east of the Sun. In that case, the planet rises at noon and then as the Sun sets, the planet is right overhead on the meridian. So this configuration of being east, so if I'm facing south, I'm watching the Sun rise, and the planet's sunlight is at 90 degrees when it's noon, the planet is just coming over the horizon, and then because the planet is always east-west in my configuration here, east of the Sun, that when the sun sets, the planet will have risen to its maximum height in the sky. So so it's a very easy configuration to observe. When is the planet exactly on my meridian at sunset? That's the time of eastern quadrature. So it's the planet rises at noon, sets at midnight, and is right on my meridian high in the sky right at sunset. The opposite configuration is called, unsurprisingly, western quadrature. Now the planet is 90 degrees west of the sun. It rises at midnight because now the angle is like this. And then as the sun begins to rise, it now is straight overhead at sunrise and then sets at noon. So if I was to walk outside just before sunrise, look up and see Mars right there on my meridian, I would go, aha, Mars is at western quadrature. Whereas if I then wait till sunset, come out at sunset and see uh, Jupiter right up there in my meridian, I would say, ah, Jupiter is at eastern quadrature because it's east of the sun exactly at sunset. So that's why we pick these. Their right angles are good in geometry, and it's very distinctive. You can tell the planet's at exactly the place where you would expect it to be exactly 90 degrees from the sun, either east or west of the sun. So we get eastern quadrature and western quadrature. Okay, any questions about planetary configurations before we move on? Okay, I got a question for you. Planet observations. Now, don't answer just yet. just sort of describe this question. Which of the following planetary configurations can actually be seen from the Earth? So which of these are possible configurations? Can we see Venus at opposition, Mars at maximum western elongation, Mercury at western quadrature, Saturn at inferior conjunction, or Jupiter at eastern quadrature? Take your pick, A, B, C, D, or E. You have 30 seconds to give your answer. So what is the position? Which of these is actually observable? One is observable, four are not observable. Four never happened. record your answers. Oops, I have to record my answer. Okay, five seconds. You're only going to get one chance at this. We're not going to discuss this one. <laughs> okay. How many of you said that Venus can be at opposition? Mars can be at maximum western elongation. Mercury can be at western quadrature. Saturn at inferior conjunction, Jupiter at eastern quadrature. Very good. The correct answer is Jupiter at eastern quadrature. Venus cannot be at opposition because it cannot get on the other side of the sky from the Sun. It cannot be up at midnight. You'll never see Venus at midnight. Mars can't be at maximum western elongation because it isn't on an orbit inside the Earth. There is no maximum angle that it ever appears from the Sun. It can appear appear anywhere from 0 to 180 degrees. The 180 degree point is neither east nor west. It's opposition. Mercury cannot be at western quadrature because it never gets more than 28 degrees away from the Sun. If it never gets more than 28 degrees away from the Sun, quadrature is 90 degrees from the Sun never makes it. Saturn cannot be an inferior conjunction because Saturn cannot place itself between the Earth and the Sun. It can only be on the other side of the Sun or on the opposite side of the sky from the Sun because its orbit is bigger than the orbit of the Earth. So the only thing you're left with is Jupiter at eastern quadrature. Jupiter's a superior planet. It can be in a quadrature configuration. Good, a lot of you got the right answer. It's a good example of the kind of questions I'd be asking. Oh, say tomorrow. Okay. So, so far, that's just simply static configurations. I notice when the planets drop into these positions, I say, ah, look, Saturn is directly overhead at midnight. It's in opposition. Ah, look, Mars is rising with the sun. It must be getting close to conjunction. Venus is 47 degrees away from the sun at sunset. It must be in maximum eastern elongation and so forth. But if that was all the planets did, if they just simply followed the sun and moon across the sky in their usual paths, they all sort of march slowly towards the east as we see them against the background stars. So I see Jupiter up against a group of stars, and the next night it's at a group of stars which are just a bit to the east, east of that. Next night, a little bit east beyond that. That is the normal motion. If you see the planets at any given time, more often than not, they are in this position, in this state which we refer to as direct motion. This general eastward drift of all of the objects in the solar system from night to night as seen with respect to this background of fixed stars. This motion is, however, for the planets, relatively non-uniform. All different speeds, sometimes faster, sometimes slower. But the degree to... But That was kind of true of the Moon, and it's true of the Sun as well. The seasons are not all exactly the same length. The Sun appears to move faster with respect to the background stars in winter and slower in the summer, or close to summer. The Moon moves at slightly different speeds around the sky, a little bit faster when it's closest to the Earth, a little bit slower when it's far away, but it's always towards the East. It never slows down and stops. It always keeps moving perpetually to the East. The planets, that's not true. As they move to the east, they get slower and slower and slower until eventually, sometimes, the planets slow down so much they actually stop moving with respect to the stars. And then they turn around and start moving to the west. They actually start moving backwards or retrograde. And then they cruise along to the west for a while, speeding up, and then they start to slow down and they stop and they start moving east again at an increasingly fast speed. So whereas the sun and the moon were highly predictable, they all kind of drift yeah, slightly changing speed to the east. The planets will move to the east, stop, back up, move westward, speed up, and then slow down and stop again, and then resume an eastward motion. Here's an example, for example, of Mars in the year 1994 and 1995. Starting in around uh, September 24th, which is about uh, 13 years ago, is a good example of this. Mars is up towards the constellation of Cancer here. It's moving eastward through the constellation of Cancer. The way to look at this picture is north is up and east is to your left, looking up at the sky. So Mars is tooling along here. But by the 1995 January 2nd, it had reached the constellation of Leo it got slower and slower, and on the 2nd of January, it stops its motion altogether, as seen from the Earth. It just stopped moving. And then it started moving west. And it moved west. It picked up speed, moving fastest about halfway between uh, January and March. And then it started slowing down again. And on the 24th of March of 1995, it just sort of slowly came to a halt, stopped its westward motion, and then returned. To moving east, so that by 1995, July 4th, it had moved back through Leo and on its way. So it starts just behind, it starts over here, Gemini, through Cancer, stops moving in Leo, backs up, moves from Leo, starts moving back into Cancer. Just barely when it gets into the constellation of Cancer, it stops again and proceeds on its eastward motion back across the eclipse, back across the zodiac. Okay, let's actually see that now as a, as a movie. I've actually got a simulation of this movie coming up. We all have to wait for QuickTime to launch. It doesn't matter that I launched it just before class. There we go. So Mars is right here, up next to my arrow. And now we see it moving through Cancer. You'll see it was moving pretty fast, but then it starts to slow down when it hits Leo, stops... Moves off to the west, moves really fast, and then starts to slow down. Doesn't quite make it to cancer. And it starts to move east again. As it moves east, you can see how it's steadily speeding up. I'm showing this at about exactly the same time, night for night. Let's see that again. Okay. Moving really fast, you zip through cancer. You start heading towards Leo, and notice how it's starting to slow down. And it says, well, we're almost going to, nope, stop, back up move really quick and then start to slow down again and then head back towards the east. So it literally makes this little loop-de-loop through the sky from September to July in this particular movie from the year 1994 and 1995. You'll see some other stuff zipping through the frame up there. That's actually some of the other planets I didn't turn their paths on. So there you go, that's retrograde motion. It really stands out. It's different than everything else that moves in the sky. Here's a photograph, a modern photograph of a more recent episode of retrograde motion in Mars. It was taken by the astronomer, again, this Turkish amateur astronomer, Tung Tetzel, who does beautiful astrophotography. Here's Mars moving along. It goes through retrograde. Notice as it goes through the fastest portion of retrograde here, it's getting brighter. You know, so it, looks, it looks bigger in this picture the way he's photographed. That's just simply the brightness. And then it zips it back around moving to the east. And you might notice this little doodad moving back there. That's actually the planet Uranus. It happened to be caught in the same part of the sky at the same time. Oops. All planets, all five of the planets that are visible to the naked eye, undergo retrograde motion. The inferior planets, Mercury and Venus, also undergo retrograde motion. They undergo retrograde motion at inferior conjunction. That's how you tell superior conjunction from inferior conjunction. Because you you can't judge depth on the sky. You can't tell, oh yeah, Mercury is closer now than it was yesterday. You can't tell. But you can tell, is Mercury moving retrograde towards the west when it it starts to disappear into the sun? Or is it moving east as it disappears into the sun? If it's moving retrograde to the west as it disappears into the sun on the sky, then we know that it's approaching inferior conjunction. And at the moment of inferior conjunction is its maximum westward motion. The superior planets, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, undergo retrograde motion at the time of opposition, when the planet is on the opposite side of the sky from the sun, and when it's high overhead exactly at midnight, the maximum retrograde motion occurs right at opposition. It starts a little bit before opposition and lasts through opposition, but mid-retrograde is right exactly at the moment of opposition. So when I see Mars moving, see Mars on the meridian at midnight, I can pretty much guarantee you that it's not moving to the east, it's actually zipping to the west as viewed in my sky. So, inferior planets undergo retrograde motion at inferior conjunction, superior planets undergo retrograde motion at opposition. For both sets of inferior and superior planets, these paths are very complex. They either make s-loops or they make loop-de-loops, it all depends upon whether they've also got a little bit of north-south motion, because remember the planets are also have paths that are tilted with respect to the ecliptic. But they make incredibly complex paths. So you can't really say, oh yeah, Mars is going to go through a loop-de-loop again, and you wait to the next opposition, and it makes kind of an S-loop. Here's an example. Here's Mar- Venus going retrograde near infer- around inferior conjunction, in April through August of 2004. This is again, another one of these marvelous photographs by Tung Tezel. April 3rd, it's over here. You zip around. Here it's hard to photograph because it's too close to the sun. And then it zips back here, making this S loop through the sky from April to August. Turns out that the path actually did cross the face of the sun there was in June of 2004 Venus actually made one of its exceedingly rare transits of the surface of the face of the Sun. So here is showing, oops, the retrograde loop of Venus. But here's another retrograde motion set. Venus position at sunset, seven degrees below the horizon, prograde, and then it starts moving retrograde as it dives down towards the Sun, again towards inferior conjunction. This is between September and March. of 2000 and March of 2001. So you see this almost figure eight path as it's just starting to disappear right towards the sun. Again, a photograph taken at the same time every day at sunset. This is taken over Ankara, Turkey. Well, let's actually have a look at that. Let's make you go away. Now, let's put all the pieces together. I showed you individual planet paths, but now what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a movie up here which shows... No, thank you, Bill. I don't want to buy any more software from you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to show the solar system as it really is. This is no computer model. This is actually just this is what the solar system would look like. It's computer calculated for the Earth here at the center. So I fixed the Earth with respect to the background stars. I showed the Sun, Mercury... Venus, and Mars, as the planets that I'm going to show in this illustration. I'm going to trail out their paths. Standing upon the Earth and tracing out the paths of the planets, the moon, and the sun. I'll I'll let the moon out of it, but we'll just show the path of the sun, Mercury, Venus, and Mars, as seen with respect to the fixed stars. The sun is pretty simple. It goes around the ecliptic once a year. But Venus, Mars there, makes a little loop-de-loop path. Now I'll turn on the paths here on the computer of Mercury and Venus. We'll wait till Mars goes through another little second loop-de loop. look it's in a different spot and it lasts a little bit different time. It's a little thinner than the other one. Now we turn on the paths of Mercury and Venus and you can see that when they're in inferior conjunction when they're closest to when they're between the Earth and the Sun is when they go through their loop So first watch Mars. watch that Mars undergoes retrograde motion when it is in opposition. Notice that it went through its maximum loop when the Sun was over there. Mars goes around again, goes through conjunction, quadrature, and now coming up on opposition and loop. Notice the Sun is on the other part of the sky. Now we switch on Mercury and Venus and they always go through their loop when they're on the same part of the sky between the Earth and the Sun. But look at those loops. That's what the motions actually look like in three dimensions on the sky. It really is that complicated. Which brings you to the question, who the hell ordered that? Right? The sun is normal, the moon is normal, the stars rise in the east and set in the west, but the planets are nuts. Right? They're unlike any other celestial motion. If we lived in a solar system with only the earth, the sun, and the moon, Astronomy would be simple. We could end tomorrow I give you all an A and we go home, but it's not going to be that simple because the other planets there have incredibly complex motions. The struggle to understand these motions probably consumed 3 or 4000 years of human history. It's really hard. The motions are really subtle and they defy any kind of poetic or metaphorical description. You can't come up with a simple way to describe those paths because they just aren't simple, they're complex. Furthermore, their complexity even defies a simple geometric description. Forget myth and metaphor, I want to discuss this in terms of geometry of circles. Those paths are not simply defined in simple geometry. There is something exceedingly complex going on on curves that turn upon themselves. This is why it was so hard. The planet's motions as seen from the Earth Really, are that complex? So, how do you begin to approach an explanation of this? The sun, the stars, the moon, yeah, just make the Earth turn around its axis or make the whole sky turn around the Earth. It's simple. They just rise in the east and set in the west, and they do their slow slide to the, to the east every day. One way is you can approach it from the point of view of asking let's make a phenomenological description. Let's just find a way to compute what the motions are going to be. Let's predict when Mars is next going to be in opposition and go through a retrograde loop. Let's predict when Venus is going to go into inferior and superior conjunction. Let's make it so that my tables of the motions of the planets, of which constellations they're going to appear in at what angle from the sun, are right. I can predict them from year after year. And let's not worry too much about why they move that way let's just simply describe the phenomenon and do so in such a way as to preserve appearances, that is, to make good predictions. So don't worry about the why, just get the answer right by any means you can. That's one pretty good approach if you have no clue whatsoever as to how to start. Start by describing it. The other approach is to try to approach it from a physical description. You want to understand what the underlying physical reasons are for those motions and ask why, and then show that your predictions for why the planets move the way they do when they do follows from first physical principles. You don't just simply tweak things up to get the answer right. You understand the principles behind it so you can calculate it from first principles every time. Those are the two fundamentally different approaches. And so what we're going to find is that we have to go from myth to science. We have to have internal consistency. We have to follow the same basic rules and no special cases or special pleading. And my rules must have predictive power. They must provide measurably accurate predictions of future behavior. And we're going to look at this on Monday to see how we achieve that.